Hi, everybody. Before the podcast gets started, uh, <laughs> welcome to everyone who this is your first podcast because of the title of this one alone, Drug You In. Um, you're probably going to be a little disappointed. At no point during this podcast uh, is there anything that even gets close to uh, adult levels of requirement. But this is a podcast that's going to be about uh, the hashtag Me Too sex abuse, sex harassment uh, and a systems understanding of, or a discussion around the systems understanding of that problem. If it's for you, welcome aboard. If it's not you, there are hundreds of other podcasts that you may enjoy. Until then, uh, sit back and listen and see what you think. Have fun. And welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I am your host, Todd Conklin. Woo-hoo-hoo! It's the new year. Are you excited? Huh? Huh? <laughs> yes, it's exciting. And the, uh, you know, early podcast of January 2018 is the one that I'm pretty sure is going to be entitled Sex in the New View. It might be Sex and Safety Differently, but I think Sex in the New View is probably going to be sexier. I'm guessing this podcast is going to get a lot of hits. We'll see. I could be wrong on this, but I feel like I might be right on it. So we'll see what happens. This is a very interesting podcast. I'm not even going to tell you. I mean, I'll tell you all about the new year and I'll tell you about my resolution, but I think that's coming up. I'll say that for next. I'm going to focus this one on the topic at hand because all of, um, you know, in the United States, and it seems like it's happening in the UK too, if I follow my news correctly. There's there's been this phenomenon with this uh, at or, or uh, hashtag Me Too, and in fact, Time Magazine picked as the people of the the year the 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 five silent women or six silent women. I think there was an elbow of a woman. There's there's a real chance the, the pendulum has swung dramatically around the notion of power sex harassment, sex abuse. And um, and it's phenomenally interesting to watch. And I got an email a week ago that, that talked about uh, sort of a systems approach to this issue. And, um, and I found it really interesting. And so I pursued the email author, the writer of the email, as it were, and said, why don't you come and talk about this a little bit on the podcast? And he said, sure. And so this is uh, our friend Bill Rigo, great friend of the pod, who, who's a thinker and an engineer and a, a linear cat, but who also has a side that he talks about on this podcast where he's quite honestly got quite a bit of experience thinking about this problem. And so it seemed perfect. It seemed like the right thing to do to do this podcast. And so that's what this podcast is. So, so sit back and listen because I think this really introduces – um, a, a, a frame, uh, and there are many, but a frame by which Bill at least is thinking about this and uh, not only just as a moral failing, but also as a systems challenge. So without much more the, uh, further ado at least, here's Bill Rigo and Sex and the New View. What on earth got into you to take a systems view to understanding sort of this hashtag me too, me too movement that's that's uh, happening right now. Well, I, I 
you know, I, I've got a history of working with my presbytery on, uh, I, I chaired a sexual misconduct team because most churches, you know, most mainline denominations um, have had to deal with sexual misconduct in the ministry for many, many years now. And, um, and they've done varying degrees of goodness on it. And, and I won't, you know, comment on, on that, but what uh, my presbytery did, and we're a group of about 67 churches uh, we formed a sexual misconduct action team, and so we write the policy on sexual misconduct, and we we don't adjudicate cases, but we deal with the aftermath of it, and we also do the the mandatory training for these Presbyterian ministers. So all Presbyterian ministers have got to take this class, and so when I saw that Congress was going to have to take these mandatory classes, I thought this is probably not going to be very good. <laughs> you know, based what what, on my, what yeah. makes you think that based on your history of working for the government? Yeah, it, it's the, it's the James reason, uh, train and write a new procedure, uh, model for ineffective, uh, corrective actions. Blame, so this, train, shame, and no shame, blame, shame. What is it? Shame, blame, blame, shame. shame. Um, no, name, blame, name, shame. Name, blame, shame, train, and write a new procedure. There you go. That's it. That's it. That's it. It's the five things. So I, I was responsible for doing the training with this. And our committee was interesting because we had uh, lawyers who dealt in sexual misconduct cases. We had judges who adjudicated them. We had Presbyterian ministers who were also counselors. And we had um, professional uh, psychologists who dealt with counseling in, in sexual abuse cases. And then there was me, the nuclear engineer. And, and I'd go to these meetings and go, so I'm here for balance? <laughs> and, and they didn't think that was funny. Um, and then after two years, the chair left and I chaired the committee. So I, I guess I added balance. But uh, so we so this Presbyterian minister and I taught this class for 10 years and we stopped teaching about three years ago when we get tired and somebody else went on. But but I thought about what we were teaching in the context of the new view and all the things that we've been talking about. And it fit because the training was part of the, you know, the training and the and the policy on sexual misconduct was part of. What you talk about, you know, that balanced approach of managing prevention, because this is prevention, and then work execution and safeguards. So we we would talk about prevention in the ministerial workplace and counseling members of the opposite sex and, and the, the landmines associated with that. And then we talk about if you had a predator in your midst, which we have had, how would you know? How would you detect that and what would you, what would you do? And then the third part that you talk about is safeguards and control. And and I and really getting into what, what Decker talked about in terms of restorative justice. So we're big into restorative justice. So we don't we, we don't stop at getting the miscreant out of the out of the ministry. We go to the victims and we try to provide some sort of restorative justice to make them whole. Um which is very different from many other de denominations. So I so I thought about that and I thought, well, this is interesting. And then I went to the drift and accumulation model, 
which uh, you and I have been teaching for many, many years. And I thought it was a perfect fit for what was going on. So that's kind of how I started this. Well, t- tell us, tell us what you're thinking, because it's timely and it's interesting. And, and, and I do think you're right. I think the sort of the restorative approach to understanding this is really important. It's going to become even more important, I think. Well, I think so, because, I mean, you just look at, uh, you know, Time Magazine named the, but the silent women as their, their person of the year this year, which I think was, uh, I, I, I thought it was appropriate. Um, then you look at Al Franken's um, speech yesterday where he basically cast aspersions on his accusers saying, well, he didn't remember it the way that they did, which means that they must be liars. Um, and so you look at these things where people are just doing bad things and they don't understand really how to, how to get, make yourself whole after these sorts of, of events. And, uh, so, you know, having a, a sexual predator in your company, uh, is, can be devastating for that company. So in the case of the Weinstein company, which is probably the most egregious uh, example I can think of, um, that company is going to go out of business. I mean, it just can't. Uh, it, it can't stay in business. Um, and so that that's a company that lost its way. It, it, the whole company was set up, to, it appears, um, to satisfy the sexual proclivities of its owner and founder. And, you know, in the end, none of them are going to look very good. Not the board, not the, you know, right down to the interns who, who uh, uh, were part of this, you know, you know, all these machinations. So companies can go out of business because of this. Politicians lose their careers. Um, ministers, you know, become disgraced. Churches uh, go into schism because of it. And so the consequences are significant, and and of course, you know, you're a you're a degree psychologist, so you can understand the the proclivities of sexual predators. Not that accuse you of that, but um, it, you you better understand this than I do. Well, and let me, um, let, me let me ask you a question because because and it's a naive question, but it's a question that I've been thinking about a lot, especially since the email that you wrote that kind of started this discussion. Is is this yeah. kind of um, sexual predation or, or this kind of uh, event that we're talking about, sort of sex harassment, sex abuse, is it a moral failing or is it a function of a, a, a gap in our, our societal systems? Is it, is it a systems problem? Sh- should we ask who failed or should we ask what failed? So I'm not going to say that's a good question because – that, that's what people say when they're stalling for time. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's, and I'm not sure I have an answer to this question. <laughs> well, I, the, I, I think the question is rhetorical um, because I, I do believe it's a moral failure. Number one, um, and and the fact that it started in Hollywood is no surprise. Um, right, but Bill, I but mean, I think going on I, I think I think the discussion started in Hollywood. I I would imagine this kind of sex harassment. Has been around. Oh, I don't know. Since time began, probably. I well, yes, and and so is it a systems failure? Absolutely, um, and and so it's both. Um, 
you know, but it, it starts with a moral failure. But then it, it, you know, if you assume that that's going to happen, which I think we should, because, you know, we're all human, we're all fallible, we all have different needs and, and what have you. The, the question is, is how do you set up your system to detect and protect yourself from this? So, for well, example, a, a church. Yeah, I'll go ahead. Well, and I would say the, the even richer question, and maybe it's the same question, is, is after we punish Harvey Weierstein or after we punish Al Franken or after we punish whoever else, you know, insert name here, what have we fixed? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're emotionally we, – we've punished the guilty, but but – have we created uh, an environment where this behavior won't have is, is shame enough to stop this kind of um, outcome? Well, no. And, and so uh, there's a church in my area where the minister was conducting uh, counseling of, of married women in his office who were going through marital problems and he was engaging in sexual relations on his desk with them. And eventually he was discovered and and fired and removed from the ministry, so he'll never preach again. But what the church did, they thought about what had happened and, and their role in all this, and they realized that 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 having a a woman behind a closed door closed and locked door with the minister might not be okay. And so what they did was they cut up a slot in the minister's door and inserted a, a piece of glass so that you could see in, you know, it was, it was one of these long, narrow right. uh, up, up and down windows. So you could see in, but you couldn't hear anything. So whatever he was counseling for the, the, you know, the church member, no one would hear, but you could see it. And so there was not much that was going to go on that the church secretary wasn't going to figure out. And we all know about church secretaries. So they they pretty uh, much have everything they, figured out. Yeah, they know they know everything. Well, and, and that's and interesting so, because mm -hmm. that that solution. So you know, I worked a long time for the Boy Scouts at this place called Philmont. Right. One of the one of the jobs I had is I was a, a coordinator of camping services, which I'm, I'm not sure if that makes it. Anyways, kind of a I was in charge of sort of all the stuff like the chaplains and and getting kids on and off the yeah. trail and and all that kind of stuff and. And we years and years and years and years and years ago, the chaplains got together and we had a meeting and they said they never want to be in a vehicle alone with just one kid. So so we right. ne we never created an environment where there was an adult and a kid in a vehicle mm -hmm. driving somewhere into the backcountry alone. Mm -hmm. We always put too deep leadership, and that right. was a that was a systems um, uh, defense, right? That was a that was a prevention tool, and I guess in a way kind of a recovery tool, but mostly a prevention tool to create an environment where it would be hard for that to happen. So, so I, I, I think you're, you're on to something there. Right, and uh, I had a, a minister who was a former Army chaplain, and he'd make colonel. And, but when we were teaching him the class, and he got it taught us, and he did several things. He described an incident where uh, you know, the battalion was deployed somewhere, and, and – and Mrs. Smith, who is married to, you know, Sergeant Smith, was unhappy, and she called at the chaplain's office, and she said, well, you know, I, I want chaplain so-and-so to come down to my quarters at 6 o'clock tonight for counseling because I'm in distress, and I just need some, some chaplain's advice. So the chaplain got his chaplain's aid, and he went, okay, 
you know, Corporal Smith, you're going to come with me and uh, to to Mrs. Smith's house and and uh, yeah, and of course the chaplain's aide was not happy about going out after hours, and the chaplain went, "Nope, <laughs> I'm the colonel, you're the corporal, you're going to do this." So he, they show up at the appointed hour. Chaplain knocks on the door, the door opens, here's Mrs. Smith, and she's in a flimsy negligee with nothing on underneath. She says, oh, chaplain, it's so good to see you. And then she looks over his shoulder and sees the chaplain's aide, and she slams the door <laughs> and, <coughs> and comes back and, and allows us how perhaps it's not a good time. Yes, yes. And Sis- Systems so, have mighty powers over behaviors. Right, and so... Um, that was the approach we took with these ministers who, who's a, that, that's a tight ass group of folks. If, if you ever want to see one talking about sex, but so when we start, would start the class, we, we go, okay. Uh, and, and I do the counting game by the way, uh, to start the class, which just confused them. And, uh, um, but, but then I, I say, okay, tell me what you're afraid of when it comes to this topic. And the number one thing they would talk about is, is the threat of false accusation. And, you know, so I'd write all these things down on a tear sheet and we'd go through and leave it up on the, on the board. We go through the class and at the end of the day, because it was an all day class and we teach it to ministers on Saturdays, which is their day off. So, you know, they didn't want to be there. And so at the end of the day, you know, we're reflecting on the tear sheet and I, I go, okay, well, what did you learn about the fear of false accusations? And with all the stories and all the tools that we'd given them, the ministers realized that they had everything they needed so that they would never, ever have a threat of false accusation. So they'd known ministers who had had false accusations, but they didn't understand what had led up to it. And so – I think the companies that we advise um, would be should be encouraged to take this into account because this is, in my view, if you're looking at the at an existential threat to a company of sexual abuse within the or systemic sexual abuse within the workplace, it can be just as bad as a fatality. So use the drift model and explain to me where you guys are going with this. I right. think it's an interesting way to look at this. So the so the line of, of work is as imagined is you know, management expects that people have read the HR policies and they've they've gone to the you know, the HR training and, and they know that, you know, sexual abuse in the workplace is wrong and and you you know, and that's and Everybody understands that they've read it, and there's no hanky-panky going on in the workplace. Um, but the reality is is that people will go out, and there will be workplace flirtations that end up in dates, that end up in something else. Or you have – you actually have predators out there that are trying things. And so the thing about predators is, is that they never stop trying, and they're, they're going to – approach boundaries and they're going to go beyond the boundaries and and so um, whether it's dating a 14 year old girl when you're 30 years old or you know uh, fondling a uso singer while she's asleep uh, and and having a picture taken of that um, those are boundaries that that predators would go beyond and and keep going and and they just keep doing that 
Um, and so, um, so predators, which are a very small part of the population, um, they aren't governed by rules. And so your, your prevention methods and your detection methods become increasingly more important um, and restorative justice afterwards. So, but, but people will drift away from work as imagined pretty quickly in this particular subject. By the same token, the hidden hazards in the workplace are women who have been sexually or perhaps abused in the workplace that you can't see because they don't talk about it. And, and where those two lines intersect, you end up with a huge um, uh, workplace, you know, a sexual workplace suit that goes to the EEOC and the company gets fined or they go out of business. Um, and you certainly want to avoid that. Well, I mean, I think you're onto something. I, I think just bringing up the question, whether it's a moral failing or a deeper systems failing or a combination of both changes mm -hmm. the frame by which you think about this problem, because it's a really, I mean, I don't know how to say it. it. I think our tendency is to oversimplify it and to say this happened because this person was bad. This mm -hmm. happened because this this person was a predator or, or a harasser mm -hmm. or whatever word we want. Therefore, if we remove the bad person from Congress mm -hmm. or any company, you name it, the problem goes away. When, in fact, I think it's obvious at every level that this isn't really a question of a predator. This is a question of power and position and 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 you think about sort of the power relationships here that exist everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, that's significant. I think it's incredibly interesting that you see the uh, the target of the harassment or abuse not reporting as a as a hidden hazard for the for the company. I think you're right. I mean, I think the risk is that that seems kind of damning towards the victim, but in fact, that's not the way I took it or you said it. What it really is is this incredibly explosive hazard that exists in a company that until that person decides to tell somebody this happened, you don't know that this high potential event coexists every day, comes in and, and leaves at the end of the day every day within your system. That, that's a very interesting way to think of this. Yeah, and I think it's appropriate. Yeah, I think um, you're right. But so I come into this somewhat naively because, you know, for 20 years in the Navy, I worked in nuclear power. And back then we had no women in the program. So my experience in working with women was, you know, pretty low. Um, and, and so when I hit the workplace, I took over this large training program that had about 160 employees. And, and they were – many of them were women. And which is kind of uncharacteristic for this company. And I, so I was talking to one of my managers and I made that observation and he, he shut the door and he sat down and he went, let me explain to you what's been going on. Cause I hadn't been told when I took the job and the, the previous manager about a year earlier had been, was a sexual predator and, and had been not fired for it. He'd been very quietly allowed to retire. Which and, and nobody said anything. He just didn't show up for work one day. He was retired. 
and I'm making air quotes with my fingers. Right. And and so he uh, so there was no talk about it. And then an interim manager came in, and I took over as the training manager. And and this guy would conduct hiring interviews in the company sedan driving out into the more rural areas of the site. And so we kind of understand what went on. So, um, so I, I, I realized I, I was ill-equipped as a manager to deal with this problem of sexual abuse in my workplace. And so I, I, called my secretary in and, and she was an older secretary in her, in her early fifties. And I, I said, Pat, here's what's going on. And I, I'm out of the Navy and I don't have, I, I'm just not sensitive to these things. I want you to be my mentor and teach me about, you know, how to avoid, you know, for me personally, how to avoid what the other guy did. Number one. And then number two, how do I manage this with a group of trainers uh, that was about 60% female? And she smiled and she said, I was wondering when you're going to ask me that question. And, and so, um, so she was my original mentor in this. Uh, I, I've since taken on other uh, female mentors, one of which was a, a nuclear engineer out of uh, Case Western Reserve, and, and she was extraordinarily good, you know, because we were bringing in probably forty to fifty percent of our new engineers were women, and so this this in a traditionally male, uh, you know, industry of nuclear engineering and chemical engineering, and which is all male dominated forever, and only in the past. 15 years did we start to get some incursion uh, of of young females into the workplace and so we we had to construct a mentoring program that would um, give our older mentors the the male engineers better tools to work with the younger female engineers and that worked very well so what do we take out of this what's what 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 are you thinking now and I'm and I'm not going to hold you to this because of the thinking process is in process, but yep. but what do, what's our what's our new view approach to understanding and moving forward with this? I, I think it goes it, a lot of it goes back to um, I, I'll just go back to your book on fatalities where you talk about you, you got to have a balanced approach, you know, in, in the prevention, the work execution. And then the recovery or the safeguards and, and control. And, and that is you've got to have policies in place. You've got to have training in place. But the training has got to be experiential. And, and you've got to put systems in place like windows in doors and um, uh, you know, all these management policies about uh, when you have members of the opposite sex together in the workplace. How do you manage that? And then how do you – how would you know in work execution that workplace um, sexual abuse is not taking place? Um, at where I worked, the back in the 80s and early uh, with the previous contractor, the sewage lift stations were being clogged with uh, condoms. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast, but I think you can. But um, Bob, you're Edwards, the first to ever say that. I will put that on the record. Yeah, it's a first. 
so Bob Edwards would call that a, a weak signal. So nothing was ever done about that. And, and people just laughed about it. Everybody knew. But nothing was ever done. And, and none of the, you know, nobody went, hmm, you know, things that make you go, hmm. And, and so the, we just didn't pay attention to what was going on in the workplace, you know, because we're trying to make plutonium and uranium and tritium and all that other stuff. And, and condoms in the sewage list station just wasn't a priority. And then the, the third thing is, is your recovery from this. So you identify a, um, a predator uh, within your workplace and you fire them, you know, and that's fine. Uh, now, the, the company, I think, has some obligation to provide some sort of uh, post-termination counseling. And, and we do this for ministers who were, who were removed from their pulpits. We provide them professional counseling, and uh, for for many months. Um, and uh, in fact, we had my own minister back in D.C. before I got into this uh, was fired for this, and he he spent weeks down at the Ghost Ranch near Santa Fe, which is I guess where all the I mean Weinstein might be there now. Um, so you know this place better than I do, but not from personal experience, but of course. But. <laughs> I do know where it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but then you've got to be. You can't do what my company did with my predecessor and just get rid of the guy, and and not say anything about it, because that tells people that um, it's okay to have sexual abuse. It's not okay to get caught. And and so. Um, did, did you ever read Jack Welch's books on winning and yeah, you know, kinda yeah. Th- so, so his first book was terrible, but in it he had uh, he had an interesting discussion about um, how you train and encourage managers or get rid of them. And and in Jack Welch's simple mind, he said there's four kinds of managers. The first kind shares your values and he makes money for the company, and that manager you reward and promote as much as you can. The second kind of manager is just as easy. He doesn't share your values and he doesn't make money for the company and you fire him. The third kind of manager is hard uh, because he shares your values, but he's not making money. And that person you put in a different situation in hopes that, that the values that he promotes within the company will make him successful. But if he, if he doesn't, he's just not a good fit and you need to get rid of him. He said the the fourth kind is the difficult, and that's the kind that's the the person who doesn't share your values, but he's making money for the company. And and Welch's he admits his biggest mistake was holding on to those guys too much or too long, and but they were counterthetical to his vision of moving the company forward. And he realized with those people, he needed to fire them. Um, and make it public. Companies have got to be able to do that in their recovery efforts to be able to, to remove, you know, you certainly need to, to remove predators from your workplaces because what they're doing is illegal. You know, it's not immoral, it's illegal. And, and so, um, the, but then you've got to make it public and, and, you know, the HR lawyers will tell you, oh, you can't do that. You know, that's privileged information. Well, you know, that's, that's just, that's a bunch of crap. Um, 
you you've got to make it visible so that um, people know it, it's not just to it's it's not to prevent predators from preying on you know innocent people. It's so that the workplace understands that management gets it, they understand it, they have values, and they're going to support them. So let me tweak that language a little because I think you you got better as you told the story. Uh-huh. I don't think um, I don't think the word's public because I do I do think HR would react to that and has a right to. I think yep. the word is transparent. Is is that the the solution for a complex problem like this is a transparent answer, and I think transparency really fits in nicely with the notion of restoration. So I think that's where we are. Good conversation, I, uh, man. You did a good job. Well, what do you think? You. So you tackled a hard well, problem. I, yeah, and it's one people just don't want to talk about, I don't think, up till now. And now it, they're all using hindsight bias to go, well, everybody knew that. And, and yeah. I think that's that's so wrong. So I look at this and I go, it, you know, there's many lessons to get out of this, but we're not going to read them in the newspaper. I I think we're going to read them in, in perhaps academic journals or, you know, something later on down the line, but certainly not in today's newspapers. So there it is. What do you think? The first cut, kind of, the first swipe, I guess, to taking... Uh, a new view approach to a rather large societal issue that has become very, very important. And it's a thoughtful podcast. I, it's it's worth your time to listen to, that's for sure. Um, not much more I can say other than think about the notion of transparency and the notion about the moral implications of this and the system's implications of this. And that'll give you plenty to do today. That'll probably keep you out of trouble. There you go. That's what we wanted to do. Until then, my friends, be brave. Uh, Fearless is probably a really good word to use for now. Be fearless. Um, Have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness sakes, be safe. (laughs)